Good evening. So we're going to pass the offering baskets um, at the beginning here for this evening. And also remember there is an offering tomorrow evening as well, for, and we're going to split it up between the speakers for this week. Um, also, please, for tomorrow evening, we have the panel discussion, and our panelists are Cliff, John Esch, Mark Stolzfus, and my dad, Ben Stolzfus. So we're still looking for questions. We have a few questions, but we, we, would, we could use some more yet. So if you have any questions or, or topics that you would like discussed, um, email me, text me, talk to me, whatever. Let, let, us, let me or Tim know. Tim, if you could bring the uh, baskets, let's pass those now. Um, this evening, Richie Lauer is with us uh, from Virginia. He's also involved with Anabaptist Financial and works with Mark Anthony on the donor, whatever, contributions whatever, side. Okay. Um, and so he's going to be speaking about stewardship again this evening. So let's give him our attention. Well, good evening to each of you in Jesus' name, and I trust that you had a good day. Um, I think you understand that your plans for Bible school got scrambled a little bit, at least for this class, and um, we're kind of filling in where we can. If you think back to when you were in school, um, sometimes it happened that on short notice there had to be a substitute teacher, and there's all kinds of substitute teachers. Um, on Monday night, you had Mark Anthony, and I consider him to be a pretty good teacher. Um, he teaches at some of our Young Family Finance seminars and um, some other things. And then last evening, uh, if, I'm remember, if I know correctly, Tim Thomas was here. Tim is more of a preacher than a teacher. He can certainly teach, but he kind of, I'll, I would bet a dollar he preached at you. And, um, and then there are some substitute teachers that they tell stories and they send you to recess. Um, and I probably fall more in that category there. I have a couple of stories picked out to tell you this evening. The first story um, goes back about 100 years. In uh, 1918, the uh, German Reich was defeated in World War I was defeated by what were called the Allied Nations, England, France, uh, Italy, and the United States. When the Germans surrendered, um, the Kaiser, or the king, or we'd say the emperor of the German Reich abdicated, and there was a revolution in Germany. The political situation was very unstable. The German army was exhausted. The German Navy had fallen apart in a massive mutiny against the officers, and Germany was pretty much powerless to resist the surrender terms that were dictated by the Allied powers in the Treaty of Versailles. The Allied uh, countries, England, France, United States, were not kind to Germany. They were very harsh to Germany. They restricted the size of the German armed forces, they took away the most productive regions of Germany and gave those to other countries. They took away all of Germany's colonies. 
um, and they required massive reparations or war guilt payments that you are responsible for this war, you are being assigned all the blame for the war, and we incurred cost and damages, and Germany is going to pay all of these costs. Well, the Germans, of course, protested that we can't afford this. It's way beyond our means. Our country is destroyed. We don't have the ability to pay this, but no mercy was shown. The Germans were expected to pay these heavy reparation payments every year to the Allied nations. The German government um, was in a quandary. They were bankrupt. And when a country is bankrupt, it's not really much of an option to raise taxes to collect more money to pay off these former enemy nations. So they resorted to the only thing they knew to do. We have a large reparation payment due, and we don't have the money. It wouldn't do any good to raise taxes because a lot of our people don't have any money. So we will just print money to pay the reparations. Um, what does the printing of money do if there's no value behind printing more money? Kind of has an economic effect, and what might that be? Inflation. It's called inflation. Inflation is when it causes prices to go up because every dollar that you have in your wallet is worth less money because they just printed another one, and it's, you might say it's only worth the paper that it's printed on. Now, you can do this for a while. Um, you can actually do it for a good period of time if you're careful about it. It's okay for the government to print more money from time to time because the value in our country does increase. People do work and they produce goods and services and there's more value here. The money should supply should reflect the value that exists in a country. But if you just keep on printing money to produce stimulus payments to the citizens, um, if you just keep on handing out money, sooner or later it's going to cause inflation. And in Germany, this became a great problem. The, the government that followed the, the collapse in Germany was centered not in Berlin, it was centered in Weimar. So it became known as the Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic's answer to its problems, huge debts, required to make these payments to the Allied nations, the solution was to print money. So they printed money, and printed money, and printed money. And it caused inflation. Uh, you two fellows can come here and you can help. I have some object lessons to pass out. Those help a teacher a little bit get by. Um, all of you probably have some money, don't you? If you got your wallet with you, good chance there's some money there. If you've got a purse with you or a pocketbook, you might have some money. We have dollars. They had, what's the German currency before the euro? The German mark. So there's one mark bills. You can just make a line and just start passing them around. Ten mark bills. Just pass them one to the next and you can just pass them down the row just for curiosity. 20 mark bills and 100 mark bills. Some of you have ones in your wallets and some of you have tens in your wallets. 
Some of you have $20 bills and some of you have $100 bills. Don't go too far. Y'all can just sit right there. If your government continues to produce money and there's no value behind that money that's being produced, you're going to see inflation. If the government foolishly prints money um, with no regard to the value in the economy, you're going to see what's called hyperinflation. That's what Germany experienced. Um, the cost of basic goods escalated. It started in 1922, and then it hit its peak in 1923. By the end of 1923, um, the government really had to run the print presses full, full speed just to keep up with the cost of living. They started printing $5,000 mark bills. Those students didn't help people pay their daily bills, so they printed 10,000 mark bills. And then 20,000 mark bills. That didn't buy a loaf of bread after a while, so they went to 50,000 mark bills. And then you got 100,000 marks for your day's labor and still had trouble buying bread. 500,000 mark bills. Million mark bills. 20 million mark bills. Fifty million mark bills. Oops, I got a little bit ahead of myself. There was a two, mark, uh, two million. Zen, that's five. Fifty million marks. And it got to the point where the paper cost too much, so they just started recirculating bills and then to just stamp a new number on the front. Kind of like adding zeros. This is the largest um, mark bill I have in my own collection. It's one billion marks. By 1923, this was not enough to buy a loaf of bread. Cost 27 billion marks to buy a loaf of bread. It got to the point, I'm done now, out of money, finally. Presses quit printing up here. It got to the point where, you know, the average housewife, if she wanted to go buy groceries, she needed to take a wheelbarrow of money to town. It eventually got to the point in the wintertime of 1923 where it was cheaper to burn money than to buy coal. It's called hyperinflation. So what's the simple lesson here? The simple lesson is that if you create money, you print money, create money, and there's no value behind it in the economy, you're going to ruin a country. Germany went into depression and drug the rest of the world down into depression. It's called the Great Depression, 1920, what was it, seven, 1929. And the whole world went into a Great Depression because the Allied nations were unwilling to show any mercy to Germany 
and kind of forced the German government's hand to just print money to pay its bills. The German people suffered greatly during that depression, and by 1933, they were ready for anything. Someone came along who could solve all their problems. His name was Adolf Hitler. They voted into power a politician named Adolf Hitler who said, I will get you out from underneath this economic bondage. And he did restore Germany economically, but then it led to the Holocaust and to World War II. A lot of destruction, a lot of misery. And what's it all go back to? The printing of money with no value behind it. Okay, so here's the lesson. Let's get this in our heads. If you print money and there's no value in the economy behind it, you will destroy your country eventually. So that's maybe a political lesson, it's an economic lesson, but I think there's also a spiritual lesson there. If any people possess increasing wealth without biblical values behind it, it will destroy that people as well. And among our people, the people that we serve, like in the constituency our organization serves, Amish and Mennonite people are wealthy, and they are getting wealthier. If we do not have biblical values behind the possession of the wealth that we are experiencing, it will eat us alive. Okay, it's being said that even right now, um, the economy is pretty good, isn't it? Most people have lots of work. Most of you are making plenty of money. What is being said is that Amish and Mennonite people are starting to drown in money. The possession of money, if it is not backed by biblical values, will lead to the destruction of any people. First story tonight, or the second story, I guess that was the first one, is about a boy. And um, there is an application to this. You're going to have to wait to after, um, I'm going to take a little break here in a bit, after that to get to the application. But I'll tell you the story now. It's a boy who was born here in Pennsylvania in 1857. His name was Milt Snavely. Um, that's a Lancaster County name. Um, his grandfather was a bishop in the Mennonite Church in Lancaster County. Um, his mother married a fellow that, oh, uh, wasn't the best fellow. That sometimes happened. Girls do that. Um, make a poor choice in a life's companion. This um, fellow she married, Henry Snavely, he, uh, or no, Henry, he, uh, he was one of these, what we'd call a ne'er-do-well. Um, he wasn't a very good worker. Uh, he left the church. She remained a church member, but he didn't care about church. He kind of walked away from church. Nothing he ever did worked out. Um, he did a lot of get-rich-quick plans that always failed and sunk the family deeper into debt. Um, they became kind of a look-down-upon family. That family is just kind of chut. There's just nothing works out for them. Um, the dad is shiftless. 
Uh, he won't hold a regular job. He went to disappearing for periods of time. He'd be gone for weeks or months doing who knows what. And then he'd show back up home and his wife would take him back. Um, it was very hard on the children. Um, they didn't own a house to live in. Uh, they rented and had to keep moving because dad never paid to rent. He was in seven different schools until he quit school in the fourth grade and just quit going. So imagine this poor boy, Milt, um, didn't have much of a life, didn't have a dad who was any count at all. His mother is remembered as having been a good woman. Um, he, he later um, gave testimony that his mother was a good woman. Couldn't say that about his dad, that, uh, that his dad was a good parent to him. But his mother was a good woman. Um, she tried to hold the family together. Um, but the dad had some of his, the boy had some of his dad's traits. And generally boys do pick up some of their dad's traits. A little bit not really good at anything, um, kind of bumbling around in life. Uh, his mom got him a job working for a printer, you know, as a printer's apprentice, and maybe he could learn to do that and earn a little bit of a living. And that didn't work out. Um, he was kind of a clumsy boy, kind of a big boy and clumsy and not very nimble. He couldn't set type very well. He kept messing up and um, his boss got more and more frustrated. And then one day he wasn't paying attention. His hat fell off his head and went in the printing press and gummed the whole thing up and they had to tear it apart. Well, he got fired. Um, about the time he was 19 years old, he decided to go in business for yourself, for himself. And that, that's a real smart thing, usually. If you can't make a living working for somebody else, go in business for yourself. Um, that didn't work either. His mom put up what money she had to help him go into business. He borrowed money from his aunt, and it only lasted about three months and um, didn't work out. He was out. It, it, it went under. He apprenticed out to someone else that lasted for, um, I think, about four months. He decided he'd go to Philadelphia. You can make it in Philadelphia if you can't make it in Lancaster. He started another little business down there. And of course, what do you think happened to it? It failed. He made it back to Lancaster County about 1871, I think it was, and he was broke. He was almost penniless. Uh, he did have enough for train fare to get back here from Philadelphia, but he had an idea. Um, and his idea was uh, he was going to, one of the, the job he had had apprenticing was with a candy maker and the candy maker made caramels. And he didn't really like the caramels the candy maker made and he thought he could make better ones. And he experimented a little bit at home and he made some caramel candy and it was pretty good. He tried peddling it on the street a little bit. And one day he was in Lancaster City peddling caramel, you know, little wrapped caramel candies on the street. And a fella came by and bought a couple and came back a few minutes later. And I don't, I can't, you know, recite the conversation, but the man was impressed. It was an Englishman, a man from England who was in the country here. He was an importer. He was here to buy merchandise to import into England for resale. And this was the best caramel he ever had in his life. And he wanted to know, well, do you do, you do wholesale orders? You know, I want to buy wholesale from you. And I'm ready to place an order. So he placed an order and a little milk, he, uh, he was kind of 
taken aback. You know, this was a big order. So he took the order, and then he started thinking about, well, how am I going to make this? He didn't even have the money for the ingredients. He needed about 200 bucks to uh, buy the ingredients to fill this order that he had already taken and promised to fulfill. So uh, most people who don't do well, they have a solution for every financial problem, and that's borrow money. So he decided he'd borrow the money. Well, he'd already borrowed the money his mom had. Um, his aunt was the one person in the family who would loan him some money. He had borrowed her money and lost it. Um, there wasn't anybody who was going to loan him money. So he figured, well, banks have money. He'll go to the bank. Uh, he had picked out three banks. I don't know how many banks were in Lancaster County at that time, late 1800s, about 1870-something there. But he went to the first bank, and of course he was turned down. Who's going to loan money to him? He's, a, he's young, and he's a history of failure. He went to the second bank and was promptly shown the door. No, they're not going to loan him any money. He went to the third bank, um, told his story. He needed to borrow $200, and he was declined. So he was walking out of the bank, and as he was walking out, um, somebody had noticed him come in, one of the bank tellers, and noticed him going back out and kind of read, wasn't a good situation. This bank teller was a Mennonite and didn't know this boy personally, but he knew who this boy was. He knew the family this boy came from. Uh, he knew kind of the life situation, kind of a sad, you know, one of those sad situations that we talk about after church amongst ourselves. And so he kind of knew who that boy was, knew it was a bad family situation. So he called him up and he wanted to know, you know, what's this all about? Why were you here today? And he told his story. Um, ben declined. Um, don't know what to do. And he thought about it for a little bit. The teller did. And he said, you wait here. And the teller went in um, to the, uh, the bank president. And he said, I want to talk to you about that boy. Um, and bank president kind of recited the facts he knew and said, no way we could do the loan. We can't risk the, boys, the bank's money on something like that. And the teller, um, of course, I don't have the exact conversation, but, but his, his, his suggestion was, well, what if I would co-sign for him? I feel sorry for him. I know the family situation. Um, if, if you'll give him the $200 loan, I'll sign for it. And if he doesn't repay it, then we can take it out of my check. Well, this was a trusted employee, um, a faithful employee of the bank, and based on the teller's willingness to co-sign, the um, bank president reversed his decision. They called the boy back in, wrote up the paperwork, and loaned him $200. He made his caramels, delivered his order, the customer was very satisfied, and he, he actually grew that into a successful business. Um, the business, the, the line of work changed over time, uh, this fellow's full name was Milton Snavely Hershey. He changed to making chocolate. Hershey chocolates. Okay, how did Hershey chocolate ever come to be? Once upon a time, a Mennonite clerk. You know, not the bank president, a clerk, a teller. A person in a responsible but mid-level position saw 
a kind of a down and out boy from a chut family and said, I'll take a chance on him. And if he doesn't pay, I'll pay it myself. And that teaches us a pretty good lesson about stewardship. Um, we're going to take a little break right here. So if you want to get a drink, stand up and stretch, go ahead. Then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about um, what stewardship really is. Just about a minute break here, a few minutes. Got it? Good, thank you so much. Okay, if you can kind of find your seat, we'll get started again. I want to talk about um, what stewardship is. And Mark Anthony had used a definition, I think, on Monday night that I kind of like. So I'm going to go back to it just by way of refreshing your memory. This comes from the American College Dictionary, 1968 edition. If um, we were looking in a dictionary today, the, um, some of this definition would be updated a little bit. Four definitions given for the word steward. A steward is one who manages another's property or financial affairs, or one who administers anything as the agent of another or others, or it's someone who has charge of the household of another providing for the table, the direction of servants, etc. I think in the Bible, um, Joseph was Potiphar's steward, really is what he was. He took care of everything Potiphar had, and then later um, he would have become what today we would call the prime minister of Egypt underneath Pharaoh, but really that's a position of a steward. He ran the country for the king. Um, and a steward also is a ship's officer who keeps the stores and arranges for the table. Okay, we would use the word stewardess maybe a little more commonly. Probably most of you have flown at one time in your life, or you will, and there are stewards and stewardesses on airplanes. And if you've been on a ship that is um, like a cruise ship or a passenger ship, they have stewards and they have stewardesses. The chief steward, on a, or a steward on a ship, is someone who takes care of the things that are used during the flight 
or the um, ship's journey, and they take care of the passengers. So who gets you your little can of Coke on the airplane? A stewardess does. Your little pack of crackers. Um, if you've got a question about something, who helps you? If you can't get your luggage in the overhead bin, who helps you? The steward or the stewardess helps you. If you're on a ship and um, your room needs attention, well, they have stewards and stewardesses who take care of your room. There is an officer on a large ship called a chief steward. And that's kind of where I'd like you to focus your attention just for a little bit. If you think about a large ship like a passenger liner, um, there are a lot of people who work to make that ship function. There are people down in the engine room who keep the engines running. There's housekeeping um, who keep the ship clean, sweep the hallways, clean the bathrooms, change the sheets out on your beds. There's um, cooks and servers who take care of the food. And there are some officers. There's somebody in charge of the ship. Of course, we know the king of the ship is the captain. But the captain isn't the only officer on a ship. Um, there's someone who is second in command. If something happens to the captain, there's a chain of command. And there's a person who's designated to take over control of the ship. There's a chief navigator who is in charge of charting the course and making sure the ship goes where it should and avoids going where it shouldn't. There's a chief engineer who's over the people who work in the engine room and the maintenance people, and he's responsible for all the mechanical operations on the ship, making sure everything's working the way it should. There's also a chief steward on a ship. And you probably never run across this person. He's an officer. Um, he has other people working for him. You run across the people who work for him but you probably don't run across the chief steward very often. The responsibilities of the chief steward are to take care of all the things on the ship. He is responsible to use the company credit card or checking account to order supplies for the ship. It's the chief steward who makes sure there's enough fuel oil to get from here to Cancun or wherever they're going. It's his job to order everything from the fuel to the lubricating oils for the engines to the food that's going to be served, to pay for it at least, to oversee that. Um, the toilet paper. We have enough of toilet paper to get us from here to there. We have enough mint chip ice cream to get us from here to here. He has the authority over all the things on the ship. Um, he doesn't pay for it out of his own pocket. He uses company money to buy things for the ship to order materials. He oversees the usage um, so that if the um, cleaning staff is not, doesn't take good care of things, um, he would be the one that answer, eventually would make somebody's head roll. If the cooks would use up all of the steak and ice cream on the first night, he would be the one that you know, institutes corrective measures. No, we don't eat up all the mint chip ice cream on the first night because you're going to be able, you're supposed to be able to serve it every night to somebody that wants it. Um, he has a lot of responsibility. Does he own anything there? 
Does he own the ship? Nope. Does he own the supplies on the ship? Nope. Does he own the money that was used to buy everything from toilet paper to food to fuel? Nope. But everything's under his authority. That's a pretty good picture of what a steward is. Um, if you work for God as a steward, you don't own the ship. You don't own the things, and you don't own the money that was used to buy the things. But you are responsible to see that the people you're supposed to take care of have enough to get from here to here. And you're responsible for paying for the things, and you're responsible whether you bought good enough quality or poor quality. You're responsible for making sure everything got paid for and that it didn't get used up before it should have gotten used up. A lot of responsibility for a steward. Uh, interesting things about this definition here. Every aspect of that definition of the word steward assumes the idea that you're serving other people. You're doing all this work for the sake of other people, and no aspect of the definition includes any idea of ownership. This works very well with how we understand biblical stewardship because God owns everything, but God uses people to, to manage and administer his things. Not everyone has the same level of responsibility. Some of you are running little ships, and some of you are running big ships. So you don't get the same budget for running the big ship as the little ship, for taking care of 1,000 people as for taking care of 12 people. Um, God assigns different levels of responsibilities, but whatever he assigns to his stewards is to be used to meet needs and to care for people. Stewardship does involve taking care of things, managing things, but I would suggest to you that people are more important to God than things are. Therefore, I would suggest to you that God expects you to use things to reach and to care for other people. What are the things that you have in your life? Things are entry points, okay? You can use the expression entry points. Um, doorways is maybe a better word for us tonight. Everything you have that's physical is a doorway into other people's lives. Doorways are useful if you go through them. Um, how many of you would have interest in building a house and including in that house a doorway that's never going to get used? You're never going to go through that door. Well, you wouldn't put it in your house, would you? If it has no purpose. Why does God put things in your life? So that you can use those things to meet needs and to care for other people. I have... Um, a little example, I think, of this. We just finished our week of vacation Bible school at home a uh, week before last. And um, I was thinking about vacation Bible school on Saturday. I had to preach on Sunday, and I wanted to take a few minutes to thank the people who did all the work for vacation Bible school. So I was thinking about Bible school. And Bible school is a lot of work. You know that? Um, probably the people who are running Bible school here this week could give testimony that um, you know, it's actually a little bit of work to get this thing together and to pull this off. Um, in our church, I thought about the fact there were two couples that were serving on 
the Vacation Bible School Committee. Um, they were young couples, and both of them had little children. Like, we're talking hang-on-your-skirt type children. And maybe that's unwise. Maybe we should have had some older couples there. But the way it worked out, we had two young couples with little babies, and they were the Bible School Committee. And um, they worked hard. We had about 50 children each night. About half of them were from our church, and about half were community children. So about half of them were halfway behaved children, and then about a half of them were little terrorists. You know, they bring in and they yell and shout and climb on the benches and don't quite know how to behave in church. There were teachers um, who prepared lessons. Um, some families did it. Some of the youth did it together in teams. They prepared lessons. They um, decorated rooms. They got together, together crafts. There were other people who passed out invitations for hours going to trailer courts and the housing projects in town. Um, a lot of work in doing it. So I was thinking about all the work that we did for Bible school, and I wondered how much um, impact does Vacation Bible School have for all the work we're doing? I know the children enjoy it. You know, so like the church children, it's like a big party to them. You know, yes, they enjoy Bible school. They're getting to see their friends in the summertime that they don't get to see every day because school's out right now. Um, Bible school is fun things. There's no hard work to do at Bible school. You know, even the lessons are simple. Um, there's crafts to do. There's recess. There's snack. Um, Bible school for church children is kind of like a party, a week-long party we throw every night for the children. Um, how much are they getting out of it? Uh, I'm glad they enjoy it. Um, are they actually getting much spiritual teaching that week? Well, the lessons are a little on the light side, aren't they usually? Um, you have a few minutes for lesson every night at VBS, and you've got these non-church children there who are climbing the walls and won't behave, and you can barely control it, and they're doing hilarious things, um, which is cracking up all the church children. Um, giving them something to talk about for about three weeks, about what these children did at Bible school. It was just so funny. Um, no, I don't think our children get but so much out of it. Well, how much does it do for the visitor children? Um, the 20, 25 visitors that were there. Well, um, the lessons are pretty basic, aren't they? Uh, not a whole lot of doctrinal teaching going on here. Um, I, it was curious to me, the, the guy that was in charge of Bible school this year, he would try to review from night to night, and he would ask a question about last night's lesson, and he would get all kinds of bizarre answers that, um, you know, I wasn't sitting in the classes, but I don't think that was the lesson tonight, or last night. Um, so no, probably a whole lot didn't stick to the wall during the teaching periods. Um, what value is there in all this work? I think there is value in doing Vacation Bible School. The, the value that I think there is in Vacation Bible School is that it's a doorway. It's a doorway into the lives of some children, whether it's one child or 10 or 50. It's at least a doorway into the life of at least one child who doesn't hear anything else about God at home. And it's a doorway into the lives of parents who are somewhere behind that child, you know, a home 
in the community that um, the home isn't coming to us. The parents aren't showing up at church, but at least we got the child. And to get the child, we have to talk to the parents and make friends and get to know them a little bit. And I think there's some value there in a doorway. Um, so you have some children here at this Vacation Bible School that I would assume are community children. They don't come from your church, and they don't come from another conservative Anabaptist church. You know, they are the wild ones. Um, and maybe they're not, but um, they're the ones that they come from an unchurched family. I think you should take particular interest in them. Take notice of who they are. How'd they get here? You know, who invited them? Who knew that family to invite them to get them here? How'd they get them here? Um, and is there a way we can maintain that contact? Um, I think that um, you don't, you're not going to fill your church up by running Vacation Bible School. Probably not, if you know, if you get really get excited about Vacation Bible School next year, you're probably not going to have to build an addition onto the church the year after that. It doesn't quite work like that. But you know what? You can make a difference. And here's a little for instance. These are um, two children that come to our church now. Uh, three years ago, I was helping at Bible school. And usually my job at Bible school is I'm a driver. So I get sent around to pick up children. And then I wait at Bible school and you know sit in classrooms and help police the situation. Um, bishops are good at being policemen, aren't they? Um, so I help police the situation keep the building from burning down, and um, then drive children home. And these children were in my car load for a week, picking them up at a housing project and then taking them back home. End of the week, I asked, uh, that's Chloe and Gracie there, I asked them, would you have interest in um, coming to church? Oh, yeah, they'd like to come to church. That'd be good. Well, then I had to go up to the door and talk to mom and see if that'd be okay by mom. Mom had no problems with it. No interest in going to church herself. Um, the dad uh, is not married to her, but he lives in the same, lived in the same apartment. And um, he had no interest in going to church, but children want to go, more power to them. We've been taking those children to church for three years now. They are more regular than some of our church members in attendance. They come every Wednesday night that we're willing to go pick them up to church. Um, do I think we're going to retain, there's actually four in the family, um, are we going to retain all of them forever? I don't know. Um, I have hopes for at least one of them. The older one there, she is 11, going on 21. Um, she goes to public school. She's already cycled through her first boyfriend. Um, she's pretty sophisticated. The younger one there um, is the one that I kind of have hopes that maybe we're going to keep her. Name's Gracie. On uh, Easter Sunday, uh, they were sitting with us in, in the bench, and uh, Brother Sean was up there preaching the Easter message. And, of course, sunrise service is pretty early in the morning. These children don't have, you know, maybe the best home life, so they're pretty groggy early in the morning. And Gracie was kind of passing out, so I just kind of leaned her over. She put her head in her lap, and I figured she went to sleep. And I'm trying to listen to the message. And uh, I noticed she's mumbling. Um, so she probably wants something. She wants to know if she can go get a drink, or do I have um, Tic Tacs in my pocket? You know, what she, what she want now. 
So I leaned over, she had her eyes closed and her lips were moving and just barely saying something. So I, I kind of leaned down and I listened and she was saying, I am the resurrection and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. She did not learn that verse at home. I am certain she had never heard it before that morning. Brother Sean had used that verse kind of at the beginning of the message. And this little eight-year-old girl was memorizing that verse. Okay? What is Vacation Bible School? It's an opportunity for you to use some of your things. Your nice church house, your cars that you go pick people up with and invite people to Bible school, um, your contacts in the community, the guy that works for you that has some children, um, the clerk at the grocery store who you know is a single mother and has a couple of children. You can use your things to reach people. And sometimes it will actually make a difference. Sometimes it might make more of a difference than you could ever imagine. So what are your things? We're thinking about stewardship. Stewardship is about things, but stewardship is really about people. So we have to, you know, get this in our minds. Let's think about our things, but let's connect everything we have or anything that you want to pick out in your mind, let's connect it to, to a person, to a body, to a living person. Doorways into people's lives. Here are some doorways into people's lives. Your money is a doorway into people's lives. Everything you buy, doesn't it involve people? There's a seller involved. And did you just buy something? Or did you have a human interaction with a person that the only reason you could have it is because you were exchanging money? Exchanging money for something. Some of you sell things. Um, and the things that you sell, the importance of them is neither here nor there, but those things bring you into contact with people. Some of you have employers, and you have fellow employees. Okay, what do you have? You have a job. And you have a job so you can earn money, so you can make your living. But the fact that you have a job puts you in contact with a boss, and with fellow employees. Some of you have employees. The fact that you have work that needs to get done, things that need to be built, that gives you the chance to interact with people. You have customers, you have vendors, you have a house. Who works on your house? Who built your place for you? Who, who's the plumber that comes, if you don't do your own plumbing work, who's the plumber that comes and fixes the things that you have? Um, if your lawnmower, your zero-turn lawnmower messes up, well, who'd you buy the thing from? Who's, who takes care of it for you? You know, is that, is that greasy guy in the back of a shop is that you just know there is some greasy guy back there that fixes my mower 
but I'm just getting my mower fixed. That's all I'm doing. I'm in and out of there. I tell them what I want, I leave, when it's ready, I come back, I pay, I pick up my mower and I go. Well, what about the greasy 23-year-old guy that's in the back? Um, did you ever go talk to him? Did you ever take an interest in who's the guy that actually fixes my mower for me? What about whatever grocery store you normally go to, like the one that you regularly go to? Have you ever noticed that um, if you pay attention, you can kind of pick out a cashier that, you know what, she's been here for a while. I've been through her line before, and uh, she looks young, and um, she doesn't look like she goes to church. You can kind of pick that out sometimes. And maybe you should go through her line every time you go to the grocery store, even if it's longer. I'm going to wait so I can go through her line because I'm going to start talking with her every time I come. And every time I come, I'm going to give her a little encouraging word. I'm going to befriend her because eventually I'm going to be asking her to church. And you can't do it the first time you go through her checkout line. But the 20th time you went through her checkout line, and every time you went through, you said an encouraging word to that young lady, um, and you older guys shouldn't be doing this. Okay? You, don't, you don't invite the young girl in the checkout line to church, but she does, or she does back there. And you had this all planned out. You were working on this for a while. You were working up to something when you could invite her to come to church with you. That's only going to happen if you build a relationship. You used your grocery money to intentionally build a relationship so you could reach a person. You know, your things can do other things for you as well. Um, I took this picture today in a place where I was. I stopped in at a shop to see somebody. And down at the end of the shop, I like little children, I saw this little guy. And he was working away. And he kind of walked past me, is the first time I noticed He was carrying some stuff and he walked past me and he had on this little work shirt, like the rest of the guys have. You know, like all the grown-up people have this, this um, shop, obviously, issued shirt on. And here comes this little goober. And he had one on, too. Had his name tag on it. Had the company name, which I whited out so you can't see it there. Um, but he goes marching by, and it's like, he looks like he's working. And I watched, and he went way down to the other end, and he knelt down on the floor, and he started sorting parts here out of a bin into these different things. So I finished talking to the guy that I had come to see, and I went down there to visit with him. He was very friendly. Um, one of the friendliest guys in the whole business, by the way. Um, but he was so happy to be at work that day. Um, and he pointed out that was his dad down there. Okay, well, there was a guy down at the other end, had a clear line of sight. You know, dad could look down and watch his son all day long, but that's dad down there. And that's Grandpa over there. Grandpa owned the place, evidently. Um, so it was grandson working at Grandpa's business, and Dad worked there, too. And it was the cutest thing. He was so proud to be at work today. He's, I mean, it's kind of like, how do I get away from the kid now? Okay? He's telling me all about these parts and what these parts are for. Um, this isn't his first day there. He's telling me how he has to sort them out and which ones go in which bins. Um, 
I, I probably couldn't compliment him because if I complimented him too much, he would just burst. He was so proud that um, he had, you know, he had a work shirt. He had a little black hat he wore when he was walking around. He was at work with dad and grandpa. Okay, what is, what's going on there? There's parts, metal parts. There's a business, but that business is being used to build a boy. Is that worth doing? It's worth more than making parts. So, you know, if their business is successful, I'm glad for them. But you know what? It's worth a whole lot that that dad and that grandpa were willing at least some days of the week to bring that little guy to work. And the grandpa thought enough about it that you think those little shirts come standard? Like, send me an eight-year-old shirt, too. Or do you think Grandpa had to pay extra to get a little shirt like that with the little guy's name on it and the company name on the other side? I think Grandpa probably had to pay extra. Was it money well spent? I think it was money well spent. We have 10 minutes left, and I'm going to give you an assignment. So you're going to just turn around so that there's two rows of people who are talking to each other. So like these two rows here, and you two guys jump in with them. Y'all are all talking together, and then these two rows here, front rows, you're gonna kinda turn around, you're gonna talk to the back row. Here's the question I have for Yuns to talk about. Who are the people in your life who you can touch through the things that you have? Who are the people in your life that if you wanted to, you could touch with the things that you have? Your things are your job, your money, your stuff. Who are the people who you could touch if you wanted to with the things in your life? And you might not be able to come up with anyone um, that you are touching, so don't reveal yourself. Um, just, you can just say it as in, you know, this is someone I could. Like, you know, you could start tomorrow because you haven't done it ever before. But who are the people that you could touch if you wanted to with the things in your life? And that's what stewardship really is. It's looking at your things as everything I have is just a tool. My money is a tool. My job's a tool. My business is a tool. My lawnmower is a tool. My car is a tool. Um, the groceries are a tool, and all the tools I have, the only reason I have them is so that I can meet needs and I can touch people. Who are the people I could start touching with my things? Okay, so you talk to each other, and I'll tell you when to quit. Um, and talk fast. I mean, don't, don't let Ben monopolize the whole thing here. Ben's got 20 seconds, and then you go to the next person, you got like 20 seconds. So go, talk. You figure out who these people are. Okay, y'all in this row are supposed to be talking to them in that row. You're supposed to talk together.
Okay, hurry up. If anybody hasn't yet, give them a chance quick. Thirty seconds. Okay, finish it up. Okay, I hope that you could come up with some ideas of people who you, if you wanted to, if you put your mind to it, um, people that you could touch by using your things in intentional ways. Um, maybe the second homework assignment, I'm not here to grade it, is maybe about two weeks from now, you kind of pick out somebody you like, you like to stick pins in, and, and you say, hey, I remember that you said that you said you could touch this person with your things if you wanted to. Um, did you do anything? Um, or did you just do nothing in the last two weeks about it? Um, and maybe just living under the fear that somebody might ask you, you might actually have to buckle down and use your things in some way to help or touch someone else. I hope you can do that. I came across a quote that um, I thought was rather profound. This quote is about 100 years old. It doesn't come from anywhere around here. It comes from, I think, Kansas. It comes from a newspaper um, series that was written in a, a little small town newspaper in Kansas. Uh, it was the town's, I don't remember what it was, the town's centennial, some celebration of the settlement of their community. And the newspaper was doing a series of articles about um, their little podump little town and the history of it and the different people who made up their community. And it was kind of focusing by group by group by group you know, what has this group contributed to our community? And um, what has this group contributed to the glorious history of our town? And there were Mennonites living there in that community. And the um, newspaper article referenced their contribution to the community. And this is what it said. This is all it had to say about them. 
The Mennonite says nothing, but goes on marketing his corn and wheat and fat hogs year after year. That's pretty damning. What's the impact on the community? Well, they were good farmers. They were financially successful. They said nothing to anybody else. Evidently didn't make much of an impression on the community beyond their finances. And I would suggest that there's probably some prosperous businesses here in this church, represented in this church. And you probably have an economic impact in this community by what you do. Even if you're just an employee and you work for someone else, you are creating an economic impact here. Wouldn't it be a shame if the only impact the Peckway Church made was economic? Wouldn't that be um, a kind of a testimony you wouldn't want to have? That you never reached anybody here. But you sure could market corn and wheat and fat hogs and widgets and building projects and build nice houses and have nice things and drive nice vehicles and obviously have money. That would be pretty sad. It would be much better if they would say, yeah, they, they've got money, they've done pretty well, but they also and then you can fill in the blank with whatever would happen if you actually decided to use your things intentionally to try to reach other people. Okay, thank you for your attention. Um, that's all I got, and I think we're out of time. <laughs>